Sure. With me, if you like, to uh, Nehemiah 8. It's page 403 in your pew Bibles if you need them. How many of you make a big deal out of New Year's? Okay. okay. A couple of people. I was raised in a family. We, we made a big deal out of New Year's, I think. I didn't realize not everybody did that. Um, but on New Year's Eve, we would set off illegal fireworks in Alney until the cops showed up and told us to stop. And um, on New Year's Day, we always went to South Philly, and we went to the Mummers Parade, and then we went to my grandparents' house and made a big fuss and to-do and ate a lot of meatballs and, and pasta and Italian desserts of various kinds. And then we worked it off by doing the Mummers Strut out in the street because my grandfather had a speaker out there. This year, I was sick as a dog on New Year's Eve, so I missed all the fun. And it, it turns out I tried doing some small fireworks in my neighborhood, and apparently nobody likes that out there, which is kind of lame. Um, but anyway, I, I appreciate these things. I like New Year's, and I realize it's not a very spiritual holiday. I just like it. But then again, this passage this week made me think a little differently. Maybe it's not such an unspiritual holiday after all, because our passage today actually takes place on Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. And that's very fitting that this happened to line up like this, right? Very providential. God's people had indeed entered a very new era, hadn't they? And uh, the temple's now done. The, the wall is finished. The gates are now properly defended. So they have a lot of cause for celebration. Uh, God's been very good to them. And, and this revival that's been going on has been kept alive against a lot of bad odds and in spite of a lot of scheming by the enemy. So how... Should they celebrate? What do they do? You know, like tonight, a lot of people gather around football and a lot of other silly things, right? But, but what, what, what do you gather around at the Jewish New Year? What are they thinking on this day? What kind of New Year's resolution are they going to make? Well, they, they kind of want to keep the party going as it's been going. They want to keep this revival alive. How do you do that? Well, the short answer is God's word. God's word is what will sustain this revival. And so this whole scene is basically like that's their New Year's resolution. It's not something silly like going to the gym. It's, um, no, that they are resolving to hear the word of God and obey it. And, and in some ways, this chapter, this section is really like the climax of the entire Ezra Nehemiah story. It's not the end, it's, but it's sort of like a, a mountaintop experience, if you like. And it centers on the word of God. The word of God is the focal point of the chapter. The word is what brings everyone together. The word is what they celebrate. And the word is what's going to fuel this thing going forward. So obviously a fitting message even today. Now, I'll be honest, uh, I preached on this very passage about 15 months ago. Uh, remember that? Back when we were talking through the vision and mission and uh, about being a biblical church, I, I decided to cover this passage. And I have been quietly fretting about that fact uh, for months now, because like, how am I supposed to re-preach the same text a year later, and I've been worried about that since I started Ezra. Like, how do I make this fresh? And at first I thought, stupid, just, just dust off the old sermon and bring that out. Uh, like, who would notice? Who actually listens to these anyway, right? Um, and maybe they need to hear it again, but, you know, that sounded too much like left overnight, and I hate that in my house, and so I decided not to do that to you. So in the end, I, I sat down and started going over this chapter again with a fine-tooth comb, and actually... I, I, I've been amazed at how much stuff I didn't see before in here, and, and my notes kind of kept growing and growing, and my biggest problem since Friday has been narrowing it down. Um, 
So, and, and the word of God is like that, isn't it? It's, it's a well you can kind of come back to again and again. And even in today's passage, you know, this book, this book was ancient then, and yet it renews God's people and it's always fresh and it builds up and convicts us in new ways. And so as this new era and this new year is beginning for God's people, uh, the word is a perfect place for them to start. And we're going to take this week and next to kind of do a deep dive on just this chunk. Um, the whole passage is about the word of God, yes. But I want to focus today on those who are hearing the word. Next week, we'll talk about those who are teaching it. Um, But if the word of God fuels revival, I want to consider how we should listen to it. How do we hear it? Well, okay, background again. Last week, we saw Nehemiah set up the security task force, right? He he appointed perhaps the only two men he thought he could trust, his butler and his brother, And uh, he took a census to make a proper account of all the exiles, and that was in part so they would know who was allowed in and out of the city, because not all the exiles lived inside the city. Some of them were out in the farmland, right? Uh, But all of them would worship in the city, and they would take refuge in the city, and they would also celebrate in the city. The city is where you go to party. Countryside parties are about as lame as my neighborhood on New Year's Eve. You want to go where the crowd is, right? And so it makes sense that here on New Year's Day, the people gather in the city, and that's where we kind of picked up in the story. And I'll read the first couple verses again. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. All right, I'll pause there just to kind of get our bearings on where we are and what's happening here again. Uh, First of all, who is here in this scene? Well, everyone. Everyone is there. We're told that all the people gathered as one man. And you need to remember that the last chapter, and they didn't have chapter breakdowns in the original text, right? You know, the last chapter ended with the census, right? So the implication is that literally everyone is here. No one is unaccounted for. So it's a huge crowd. There are tens of thousands of people in this square. Now, where in the city do they gather? They gather at the water gate. That doesn't mean anything to you, I'm sure. Uh, We mentioned a lot of gates last week. Uh, The water gate, as it turns out, if you look up a diagram, is one of the two gates that leads into the original old city, like David's Jerusalem, before it expanded. Uh, What's interesting about that is that by default, that means that they are now not particularly close to the temple, which is interesting to me. Uh, It struck me as kind of odd at first because it, it quickly becomes clear that they're here kind of for a holy purpose, and yet they don't go to the temple. The temple mount is on the other end of the ridge. So why meet here? And the text doesn't give an explicit reason, but my sense is that it's actually quite simple. It's because of the square. Uh, apparently at the Watergate, not the hotel in Washington where Nixon got in all that trouble. <laughs> Focus on Jerusalem, people. It's all right. At the Watergate, there's this big square. There's a plaza there. And that's probably the only place where a group this big could fit in the city limits right now. That's my guess. And a big open space is actually more conducive to what's about to happen, which is really like a revival service. The temple... The temple was not originally designed so much for preaching. The the focal point of the temple was the altar. It was sacrifice and and ritual 
uh, not the preaching of the word. Now, of course, I say that knowing that when when you get to the New Testament, we see some sermons that are preached in the temple. Uh, Jesus preaches there, Peter preaches there, right? But the best places for preaching in the temple and where they tended to gather is, is, you know, the, the, the bigger courtyard, Solomon's portico, this kind of thing. Those things were built in Herod's renovations. They were not there originally. Uh, So the original temple was a simpler structure. It wasn't built to be a town square. And so the people gather at the water gate simply because that's where there's room for this kind of crowd. And when do they gather? We've already touched on that, Rosh Hashanah, New Year's Day. Now, some of you may ask how it can possibly make sense that verse 2 tells us this was the first day of the seventh month. I can't claim to understand the Jewish calendar. I barely understand my own. I don't even know how we come up with Easter every year, right? Um, but according to Wikipedia, this, this is the start of the civil calendar uh, for the Jews. They had an ecclesiastical calendar that started in, at Passover, but the civil calendar started later in the fall. And traditionally, this is supposed to mark the creation of Adam and Eve. Um, but even in the surrounding culture, in Babylonian culture, the seventh month of the year was known as a month of beginning. Um, so even in this sort of broader cultural moment of this era, uh, this day would be generally recognized as the first day of a new year, a first day of new beginnings. It it represents a fresh start, a renewal. So everyone is together at the Watergate, and it's New Year's Day, and that's the scene, that's the backdrop. And what are they here for? That's kind of surprising, honestly. They're here for God's word, and in fact, they practically demand it. They say, bring out the book and read it to us. That's what they say. And I love this. I don't know how a preacher could not love that kind of line. But it's also not necessarily what you would expect a crowd to ask for that had gathered in the town square like this. Like, what do crowds typically call or chant for? If you go to a sporting event, what do people chant? What do they cry out for? Any examples? Sometimes they're calling for the umpire's neck a little bit, right? You know, we cheer for the defense. We call out very specific things. We call out specific players, this kind of thing or whatever. You know, we try to rally people. If you go to a political event, people do the whole four more years thing, right? Like this is, this is what crowds yell for. They get worked up for. Or they can be angry. Uh, and, you know, all of the people here have put everything on the line in some respects for this rebuild and this revival, right? They, they closed their businesses. They have worked themselves to the bone. They have sacrificed their farms, their financial security. Some of them, as we covered before, had even sacrificed their families. They had sold their own children into slavery to make this thing happen. I would think that they're a little bit stressed at the end of all that. They're very tired. And here they are gathered as one man, tens of thousands of people. That could be a scary scenario. It could easily become a mob if they turn angry. You know, and then when they're gathered after many weeks of suffering and hardship and they're still surrounded by enemies, like they could be here to make demands. In fact, they are here to make demands. And yet they don't demand food or housing or, or money or security even. They're not here for material things at all. They want to hear from God. That's what they're clamoring for. What they want is the bread of God's word. And it makes sense that they gather here together because the word is a meal that is best when shared. I don't know how many of you feel weird eating alone. Um, 
I, I sometimes do. Don't get me wrong. I mean, sometimes that's just the facts of life. Sometimes you have to. And well, and the proverb says, and it's one of George's favorites, is you know, food eaten in secret is sweet. Um, especially when you're hiding it from the kids. But <laughs> all the same, we all know that certain meals are meant to be eaten together, right? Um, you don't eat a turkey by yourself. There's something <laughs> wrong with that picture, right? You shouldn't eat a cake by yourself. I'm willing to bet there are some in this room who have, but hopefully you broke it up over at least a few days. Um, but certain things are meant to be eaten with company, right? And that's what the word of God is like. This meal is meant to be shared. It's a feast. It's not a TV dinner. There is no substitute for opening the word together on Sunday morning like we're doing right now. And by the way, that, that, that's part of why I have been resistant. I know the deacons have been talking for a while about, like, should we try to live stream the service? And I feel like my initial hesitation to that is, like, I know that's the rage and that's, that's something. And we might yet do it because there's some legitimate reasons to do it. Uh, for those who have, you know, physical hardships in this thing. But the upside of not live streaming is that no one can use it as an excuse to skip church. Because I, I don't care how much Bible reading you do at home and how many sermons you watch online, it's not the same. The Word of God is meant to be received together. It's a group activity. It's a family meal. God has not designed His Word merely for private consumption. And, and don't get me wrong, private Bible study is wonderful, and we probably all need to do more of it. My point is that it's, 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 it is not sufficient. It is meant to be received together. So when God's people gather here in Nehemiah 8, they don't hand out Gideon's Bibles and send them home. No, they, they gather as one man to hear the word together. That's the way it's meant to be heard. So the people want the word. They demand the word. They want to hear from God. And so they tell Ezra... Remember Ezra? This is a story about Ezra and Nehemiah. Yeah. We haven't heard from him for a, quite some time. We'll discuss that later. But apparently he's alive and well, older and wiser. And so they tell Ezra, the priest, to bring out the book and read it. And that's exactly what Ezra does. And I'll go back to verse 2 and, and 3 here. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra may have gotten older in this meantime, but he still has it where it counts. I, I, I like reading. <clears throat> I don't mind doing that. And I can do this for up to half an hour, you know. Um, but uh, reading out loud for six hours is actually kind of an impressive feat. <laughs> especially since I'm willing to bet that Ezra didn't skip the boring bits or anything like that. You know, men were real men back then, and he's a priest, so uh, he, he's not skipping the genealogies here, all right? He's, he's digging in there. This is a marathon reading. But I want you to notice there's a couple of things jump out about these, just these couple of verses. And, and again, who is here to listen to the word? Verse 1 said, all the people are here. Everyone covered in the census, presumably, right? Everyone's gathered as one man, and so that was already established. And yet two more times here in verses 2 and 3, 
He elaborates further. For some reason, the author finds it necessary to tell us that this included men and women and all who could understand. In other words, children up to a certain age, or after a certain age, I should say. It says this twice, which makes me think we're supposed to notice. He really wants us to know that when he says all the people, he means everyone. Why is it important to know that this crowd included women and even many children? And again, I think it's because not only is the word of God meant to be a group activity, it's a family activity. God's word is for everybody, and it is not a respecter of sex or even age, really. Because let's face it, this is a patriarchal society. Most of them were, right? Uh, Every list of names that we have seen so far in both of these books uh, has been like more than 99% men. Like daughters get mentioned a couple of times, like that's about it. The focus has been on heads of households. That's how genealogies are kept. But when it comes time to break out God's word, that's a family activity. Everyone gets in on that, the wife and the kids. And the only limiting factor here is understanding. In other words, as long as you're old enough to understand language, this is for you. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't even have to be able to read. You only need to be old enough to listen. And why is that important? I I think maybe we can miss the significance nowadays because we take the word for granted. I mean, they're given away all over the place, right? But there was a long stretch of church history when access to the word of God was limited intentionally by the church. And maybe there's still a spirit of this at times, but the church thought that most people were not capable of understanding it. They thought that the word was dangerous in the hands of common folk, and many men who tried to translate it into common languages were uh, executed for their pains. So theology sort of became a very exclusive science, and sometimes we still treat it that way. Uh, I think as R.C. Sproul wrote a a, a sort of approachable systematic theology, and he he titled it, Everyone's a Theologian, to sort of try to break that thing. But the church has not always agreed with that uh, concept. Only the elite, only the specialists, only men of letters can really get into God's word. But this this scene by the water gate shatters that idea. The word is for everybody, men, women, and even children who can understand. This is not supposed to be a boys club or adults only. When God speaks to his people, he speaks to all his people. Now, Side note on practical things, I think these two verses are an endorsement of having children present in worship. But they are also an endorsement of having a nursery. I sometimes see these debates online about children in worship versus having a nursery, and I kind of think, like, why not both? Um, we have to exercise some practical wisdom and hospitality here, and I don't, I don't believe in children's church that sends kids down to play dodgeball, and we don't do that here. Be too noisy through the floor. Um, but if your child is old enough to listen, we want him, we want her in here. But we have a nursery, and that's designed for those who cannot understand the youngest ones, because there's no need for an infant to sit through my sermons. Some of you may say there's no need for anyone to sit through my sermons, but. <laughs> 
And there's also no reason why moms should miss every sermon during the infant years. And that's why the nursery is available during the sermon. And we try to have just a rotation of volunteers, right? But the overall principle of these verses is clear. The word of God is intended for everyone. Men, women, and as soon as they can understand it, children too. Because all of us need to hear from God. And it's not just about listening passively to the word of God and just being in the same room while somebody's reading it. I discovered this week, uh, somebody had posted online like they had never seen this, uh, that, that James Earl Jones had done a reading of like most of the New Testament. And uh, it's King James. And like, I mean, talk about like, what do they call that, ASMR or whatever, you know? It's, I mean, you can just sit there and listen to James Earl Jones speak and everything else, but it's all old English and it's just like, I'm not really hearing it, you know? And they have rain playing in the background. It's weird. Um, <laughs> But it's like, it's beautiful and very cathartic. And yeah, I could fall asleep, but it's not, I'm not really being edified in the process. It's not about passively listening in that way. This isn't a bedtime story. This whole scene is a renewal and confirmation of their covenant vows. Revival is renewing your relationship with the God who saves you. And if you go through the history of Israel, there are several examples of dramatic public readings of the whole law. And that's kind of the pattern that you see. It's a, it's a renewal and confirmation of the covenant, a reminder of their relationship with God. And it often comes right after a significant moral failure of some kind. So if you go to Joshua 8, uh, after the sin of Achan, when he, when he hid all that treasure or whatever, Joshua ends up reading the law after all of this to renew their commitment uh, if you go to 2 Kings 23, King Josiah finds the book in, of the law somewhere hidden in the temple, and they, he reads it, and then he, he's heartbroken about like all the things they're breaking on a regular basis here. And so he reads it out loud to everyone so they can renew their vows. So the word is meant to lead to repentance, which leads to a fresh start and renewal and revival. But such a revival doesn't come if you listen passively or Inattentively, you have to pay attention. As, as we say at the readings earlier in the service, your ears must be open, as indeed was the case in verse 3. As he says, the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. All right, so we've seen that this is something we do together as a body, men, women, and children. We do it for renewal, and we must do it attentively. But there is one last thing that I'd like to point out in this passage about the hearers. If you are truly listening to the word of God, it should create a reaction. There should be a response. Well, one thing that jumps out at me is that for the people in this passage, hearing the word of God is practically a full contact sport. There's a, there's a physical reaction that happens to the, to the word. There's a lot more movement in this passage than in a typical Presbyterian service. So first off, notice that when Ezra opens the book, everybody stands, as he says in verse 5. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. Now, to be fair, that indicates that they were initially not standing, right? They were seated or lying down on the ground. I don't know. Now, there are some churches, um, Russian Orthodox churches, maybe some others, for example, that have no seating at all. Uh, and basically, you kind of remain at a permanent attention, like being in the Marine Corps or something like that. Like you show reverence to God by seeing how long you can stand like a POW in World War II. Now, 
That may sound pious. I don't think it's the biblical model. These folks were seated or something at some point. I don't think that comfortable seating is incompatible with worship or revival, but it is appropriate sometimes to stand for God's word because it shows reverence. It's kind of like when everyone stands for the bride at a wedding, right? I still stand for women when they come to my house. My guy friends, not so much. Like They can just come to me. That's fine. But there's something else about standing up. It's not just showing respect. What it shows is that it indicates, it indicates expectation. You expect the word to do something. When you stand, you're ready for action. And, you know, this is why we've been now standing for the sermon text. Um, and we used to stand only for the gospel readings. But look, let's be honest. Ezra's not reading from one of the four gospels, is he? But it's still God's word. And it still points to Jesus. So they stand because why? They expect something to happen. It's like standing up at the end of a baseball game when there's two outs, right? And there's two strikes and the pitcher's got this guy cornered and you anticipate the strikeout to end the game. You stand because you anticipate the ending. You expect something to happen. So when God is speaking, it is fitting sometimes to stand, to pay attention. It's not like you're trying to show reverence for a physical book. Like we're not Muslims, right? Like they might declare war if you mistreat a physical copy of the Quran. It's like silly, right? Let's be honest, this is just a book, all right, in a sense. It's printed by Crossway. Uh, many of my pages are wrinkled, and some of the maps are starting to fall out in the back because that's what happens to every Bible, I think. But it contains God's word, and the word has power. And so when you get into the word, you should expect God to do something when his word is opened. It's for your sake to remind yourself physically that something important is happening, something solemn, something holy, something powerful, something exciting has just been opened, and you should expect it to change you. I think that's what they expected at the Watergate. But they don't stop just there. Verse 6 says this, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So when the book is opened, they stand, but then they're shouting Amen, and they're raising their hands, and they're bowing their head, and now they're down on the floor. It's just like, I don't know, it sounds like a kid's exercise or something, right? Like they're all over the place. Again, not very reformed. Fozzie would say, they don't look like Presbyterians to me. They are not acting like the frozen chosen. No one reminded them to sit still and be silent in church and to keep their hands in their lap and stop fidgeting. And you can only conclude that these physical acts in worship are not only okay, but important. And we know that. I know the elders of this church, we've generally raised our hands when we were leading in prayer. I sometimes forget, but it's a, it's a good idea. But it's a way of physically sort of reaching out to God. Um, and, it, and it's also kind of a helpless posture, and, and bowing is similar. It's, it's kind of like complete surrender. It is not intended as the elders sort of channeling God's energy down to you. Um, but what we're seeing here modeled is that it's not the elders, it's the people raising their hands. And I'm going to be honest, I haven't seen white people do that since I was at New Life. 
They raised their hands because they know they need God and because they know he is present, even though the temple's on the other side of town. Because he is present by his word. They expect him to do something. They expect him to show up in power because the word is open. When I read these kinds of things, I sometimes can't help but think like, what I wouldn't give to see people that emotionally caught up in worship on a Sunday morning, you know? Some hand raising during the singing or when the word is read, not just during the benediction, like but throughout the service, like that would be kind of fun. It would be energetic. Not that I want to see people force that. And, you know, it's a different approach I have because, again, I did grow up in new life. I used to giggle about it as a kid. I didn't get it. Me and my sister were very ill-behaved, and so we would sit back there and we would watch people doing it. We'd imitate them and laugh, and, you know, people are getting all emotional in the, you know, in the pews as they worship and everything else, and we're just like... <laughs> but that was messed up. And it's really not so different from what we see here in Nehemiah 8. The people are stoked to hear the word of God, and they can't contain themselves. <clears throat> So I ask you, like, do you believe that God is doing something on a Sunday morning here? Like, they did. Do you believe that he's here with us? Because they did. Do you believe that God is about to do something powerful among his people? They did. Do you believe that his word has power and that God is speaking to us today, even now? They absolutely did, and they show it by their body language. So is it really a mark of maturity that we all can sit so still when God is with us and speaking to us? I don't know. I don't think it's a sin to sit still, but it's not really what we see modeled biblically. Um, and maybe we're just being respectful by middle-class American standards. I don't know. But then again, maybe we're just not that excited and maybe we don't expect God to do that much. And if that's the case, then maybe we need an attitude adjustment. Well, look, so much more can be said about this passage. So again, to be continued next week, but I, I think we have a good head start now on how we should be listening to the word of God. We should hear it together as God's people and as families. It should renew us by convicting and reviving us in our relationship with God. We should be attentive and listen carefully. And the word should create a reaction. It should excite us, however it manifests itself. When we hear the word preached, we should expect God to do things when this book is open. In us, in our neighbors, and in our city. The Westminster Larger Catechism, when's the last time anybody quoted that? Um, the Westminster Larger Catechism puts it this way, and it's actually beautiful. Question 155, how is the word made effectual to salvation? The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ, of conforming them unto his image and subduing them to his will, 
of strengthening them against temptations and corruptions, of building them up in grace and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. That's good stuff. And I think the people of Nehemiah's day would have agreed. The word has power because of the Holy Spirit. He's been using it for several thousand years to revive his church from time to time, and he hasn't changed the formula. It still works. I'll close by observing that there is some foreshadowing here. This entire scene, again, is happening in a public square in front of the water gate. Revival and renewal doesn't depend on the temple, which is good because there is no temple now anyway, right? But what fuels the revival is not their work, their worship, what they're doing. What fuels it is the word of God. The spirit doesn't need any other tool and he doesn't depend on you to make it happen. The word is effectual in his hands because the written word of God points you to the incarnate word of God. The whole book points to Jesus who died for you and was raised for you and sits at the Father's right hand ruling for you. And he says, I will build my church. Revival is his project. So let's get excited about his word. And as you listen, you will hear his voice just as they did in Nehemiah's day. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you as always for your word. What a precious gift that you have recorded your commands, your history with your people, your covenants with your people. Throughout the many centuries, Lord, all of these books, all of these various authors, all pointing to the same Christ who brings it all to fruition. We thank you that you still speak through your word and we pray that you would teach us to listen and to hear and to receive and to expect that you are going to do big things when your word is open. Help us to do that this week. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.